Can you hear? Yes? That was lovely. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami The silence is a challenge to the world. The silence that we develop here is a statement. It's, it's a protest to the world. And it began with the Buddha himself 2,600 years ago. It's probably the longest protest that ever happened. But not many people can listen. Not many can get the message. And as you all so beautifully requested, out of compassion, repeating the same request that was made to the Buddha by the Brahma Sampati, to transmit the Dhamma for the sake of those with little dust in their eyes out of compassion. And so in our monastic tradition, we have this manner of speaking quite uh, spontaneously without preparing. Um, But just from living the life and from studying ourselves, from studying the Dhamma here. And as I noticed with many of you during the interviews today, the struggles are classic. They're universal. They keep recurring over and over again from person to person, retreat to retreat, year to year. We all have the same uh, struggles. And the way these struggles manifest in the mind, it is a universal experience, is through five hindrances. And these five hindrances arise in different ways and different combinations for each of us until we can purify our hearts. And in effect, through silencing 
our actions, our activities, our busyness, our worldly preoccupations, and gathering here together, we enter into a field of purification. It's a field of goodness. And we generate a a wonderful momentum for ourselves to help us purify these hindrances. And what are these hindrances? They are none other than sense-desire, ill-will or aversion, restlessness or anxiety, sleepiness or dullness of mind, and probably the most difficult of all, the one that can undermine us when we think we have all the others under our, I don't want to use the word control, but at least some restraint, is doubt. A doubting mind. Is any of this familiar to you? (laughs) Of course. Mm. The experience of hindrances If we call them hindrances, then we might feel that they're enemies. And in a way, they are. But it's not personal. It's not like they're out to get us personally. They're just what the untrained mind does. So as long as we remain untrained, we will keep on experiencing sense-desire in all its manifestations, and aversion or anger or ill will towards different things that we encounter in life, or restlessness with the way things are, agitation, anxiety, and that can grow and manifest in some cases even as panic, or sloth and torpor, those are the classic words, but uh, it's a whole range of phenomena like exhaustion or boredom or a lack of clarity in the heart, confusion. And sometimes this can uh, spill into a general state of lethargy and laziness, a great complacency, like couldn't be bothered nothing I can do, a helplessness. And doubt, of course, just takes them all and makes them bigger to try to uh, discourage us or get us away from here. Like somebody already left thinking that she preferred a little yoga or a walk in the park something a little easier, because this is quite an intensive commitment. And I'm sure there must be at least one of you who didn't really want to tell your friends where you were going, because they might look at you askance and wonder, what's that all about? But this this training to overcome these hindrances is the path of purification itself. 
and it was laid out by the Buddha through many different lists. And one of them, besides the Eightfold Noble Path, is the mental powers. So even though we have these things arising in us, there are things that we can do to diminish them, to restrain them, to protect ourselves, to seclude ourselves from them. And these mental powers work a bit like the gears of a car. The first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear. So there are five classic mental powers, and then there are many other qualities of mind that we can develop to go through the dark times, the angry times, the disgusted times, the frustrated times, the greedy times, the confused times, the boredom, the discouragement, or the overexcitement, the restlessness, too much energy, lack of stillness. <coughs> These mental powers are none other than faith, uh, being able to trust that this practice works, that we can really uh, still and calm the mind enough to be able to see what's true and what isn't true, to see what we need to be looking at, rather than what the world is uh, convincing us that we should look at. So faith is really important for us to be able to stay here and sustain this commitment. If someone starts to fall into the hands of doubt, then they go out the door very quickly. Even in monastic life, which is yet again another level of commitment, doubt is very often the one that trips people and sends them out the door. So, faith and doubt, uh, or wisdom actually, it's, all of these mental powers are highly informed by wisdom. If we have the wisdom to investigate what the mind is doing, then doubt doesn't, doesn't have a chance. But it's very sneaky. All the hindrances disguise themselves in different ways and trick us again and again, even after years. We still, we might get to know them better, but they still find their way to creep in. So faith and energy. It's not enough just to uh, try the first day and then the rest of the time think we can ride on the wave of that effort. Every day we have to put in perhaps more effort until the mind really gives itself gives up its unwholesome ways and lets itself uh, taste and just be with what is arising, rather than creating something out of the, the situation, trying to identify somehow or uh, entertain oneself by dreaming and 
creating fantasies in the mind. So faith, energy, mindfulness is the, like the center point, the centrifugal force that holds the other mental powers together. And then there's the concentration of the mind. Concentration in the sense of not getting distracted, not allowing thoughts, memories, desires, moods, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, anything to distract us from staying on course. And then there's the wisdom factor. And again, it's not linear. It's not like you start with faith and you end with wisdom. But all of them work together. And they work like a team. An excellent team of mental faculties, mental abilities that enable us to defeat the hindrances as soon as we can be mindful of what's arising in the form of a hindrance. For example, supposing you feel greed, you're meditating, and suddenly the thought arises in your mind that it's almost lunchtime, and you start imagining what's going to be for lunch. This is greed. If we can notice that there is this kind of a thought, then it's very... uh, We have our little toolbox. It's at our fingertips to bring up mindfulness and notice that as greed, that sense desire. And if we trust the path, if we have enough faith, then we can keep sitting And if we have the knowledge that mindfulness and all these other mental faculties will help us to sustain attention in the right way with enough energy and commitment so that we don't lose whatever time we have left before the bell rings. Because every moment there's a potential to have a breakthrough. So these... This is one way that we can work with a greedy mind. What about aversion? Greed is the force that attracts us to objects, and aversion is the force that repels us from objects. That was a drink of water. This repelling and being repelled by and being attracted to objects is pretty much the name of our whole life. What is samsara about? It's about repulsion and attraction, getting hooked and then disappointed over and over again. Whether it's in relationships with people or in relationship to possessions, our house, our job, our colleagues, our education, our bodies, our our looks, our age, our old age or young age, uh, the shape of the body, the, the height, the color, our religion, our opinions, all of it, the whole thing, where we have opinions of like and don't like, 
get away from and get more. And so our life spins. And here, we're pressing the stop button. So between greed and hatred, or greed and uh, the opposite, like aversion, like not liking, trying to get away from what we don't like, for example, pain. These are the two forces that are probably the primary hindrances along with confusion or delusion. And the other are more minor hindrances that are these in a a slightly diminished form. Like anxiety and restlessness are a sort of lesser breed of hatred and ill will. But nevertheless, they have that aversive feeling in them. Restlessness. I don't like it here. I want to get out. How do I get out without getting embarrassed? How do I leave? Well, they give me my money back. I don't know if that... <laughs> these, are the, the, these are the kinds of thoughts that are completely anathema to the purification of mind to the development of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, non-restlessness, stilling the mind, energy, commitment, faith, trust in the process, trust in the practice. And every time we apply the mental powers to the hindrances, we are training ourselves. That's why in modern parlance we would call this a DIY project. No one else can do this for us. We have to do it for ourselves. Going back to the, um, the quality of aversion in the mind, aversion is a really powerful force. I noticed in one of the interviews Uh, somebody mentioned that they were sitting next to someone who sighed a lot. And, And the way this person dealt with that was very skillful. Instead of building up aversion, like why can't that person keep their sighs to themselves, the the approach was that the sigh was a reminder, where is my mind? Am I being mindful? This is so skillful. Instead of letting the mind get caught up in criticizing the other person, they don't know how to meditate, all they can do is sigh. We can turn the heart to compassion. A lot of suffering. Or tiredness. It is, we've only been here for a couple of days. Right? Early days, it takes, it really takes time to decompress and to really land. But the aversion in the mind is very successfully and uh, brilliantly dealt with using metta. Now metta is one of the four sublime abidings. It's not classically called a mental power, but it is traditionally one of the most 
trustworthy allies in dealing with any kind of mental aversion or dislike, distaste. Even if someone is being mean to us, we can also, if we can't bring up loving kindness, we can try to have compassion. Because no one in this world would be mean to anybody else if they were wise, if they were restrained, if they were skilled, if they were happy, if they were not suffering. This is just my opinion. So if someone is not behaving well, it's perhaps we could reflect. Instead of going to a critical state of mind, we can reflect, this person must be suffering. Can we just be patient? Can we not get overheated, get excited and react? So it's a very direct way of dealing with an obvious obstacle to purifying the, the mind in the present moment. We have a, a thought about what happened last year, a memory of someone we don't like, grief coming up o- over sickness, loss, separation, redundancy, divorce, uh, the marathon bomber, so many reasons, violence terrorism, fear. We have that coming up. And we can bring up metta, loving kindness in the heart for others as well as for ourselves. And we can bring up compassion if there's a lot of suffering for others as well as ourselves to calm the mind, to calm the citta, bring it back to the present moment, bring it back to the breath, to the body formation so that we don't get knocked off our seat. And I don't mean physically. Because, you know, I've fallen over too. It's very embarrassing. But that's just, that's natural. We're here, we're tired. We've been running and we've suddenly stopped. I like to use the image of, I remember when I I was a kid and I used to like roller skating. I'm a bit old for rollerblades, so I I only ever roller skated. And I remember when I took off my skates, it felt like I was still moving. Uh, I suppose that happens if you go for a long train ride. But so it is when we step out of the thrust and the, the, the engine, the powerful fuel of samsara, the world with all its seductions and fascinating uh, experiences to offer us, if we step away from that into this realm of silence, tiptoe, just moving like ghosts through the rooms. I should say angels. (laughs) And feeling what it's like not to know, who are these people? I don't know anyone here. Or you might start to get distracted by uh, what people are wearing or how they sit. But really what we're trying to do is train our minds to be with our own experience, not looking around, giving up our opinions about 
the world, whether it's the world out there, the world in, in our minds, the world in our hearts, the mind being the heart in this case, because that's where all the suffering begins, in the heart. You might think it begins in the body, but the pains of the body we can endure until the heart starts to contract with that pain, as many of you experienced. Learning how to use our experience of unpleasant sensations in the body and even our aversion to those unpleasant sensations, use them as a teacher, as teachings. What can I learn? Rather than, oh, I can't stand it, it's too much. I don't need to sit here any longer. Doubt is creeping in as well. Using the mental faculties, we calm the mind, we bring up the metta, a loving thought, a loving accepting, uh, and a curiosity about the pain. Or patient endurance, like just to be with it and investigate it. What is it? This is panya. In this case, it's the investigative arm of wisdom. It's called Dhamma Vichaya, where we look at the pain, we, we aim our attention at the painful sensation, and we keep uh, seeing it not as something terrible to get rid of, but as pure feeling in the body and investigating what is it really? Is it burning? Is it piercing? Is it numbness? Try to endure a little bit longer and not react to it to see does the pain stay in the same place? Does it grow? Does it diminish as we watch? And we may discover that it disappears even. Some, there are some stages of insight which are classically associated with unbearable pain in the body. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like in order to realize the third noble truth of the cessation of suffering, we actually have to endure a lot of suffering, study suffering, understand suffering, see the origin of it, understanding it, not running away from it. This is not a project that the world would favor, except in some kinds of masochistic circles where there is absolutely no understanding. It's just delusion. It's just some kind of twisted sensation that comes which gives a, an identity or a, a sense of being, of becoming. I guess it's in the realm of vipavatana, like uh, trying to get away from the world or get away from the, the attachment to the world. But this is not a health, that's not a healthy form. But in this case, we're, we're using intelligent attention of pain so that we can take pain as our teacher. I went through a lot of pain in 
years gone. And, and now life itself, through aging, the process of old age, sickness, and eventually tomorrow, a year, who knows? The dying process. Suffering comes, and it's a teacher. And if we can be with it through intelligent, appreciative awareness, rather than fear and aversion and get rid of it, don't want this, don't want to know, numb out, then we miss a golden opportunity. And there, of course, we have to also do this with balance. In all of these functions, um, using the mental faculties, we have to do them with balance, not with force, not with willpower, but in a measured way, because it's the middle way. So every time we're applying energy, for example, when we're tired and restless, bringing up more vidya, energy. That, but if you're really, really, like if you've just flown here from Africa, there's this phenomenon called jet lag. This is the physical tiredness. Even if you come from New York, there might be jet lag. It may not be time jet lag, but just the quickness of the pace of life, the speed of life, very speedy world we live in. So we have to remember to balance and come to the middle way. Take a nap and refresh or get up and do walking meditation and then try sitting. But either way, these faculties help us to regain balance so that we can walk right down the middle of our greed or our hatred, our restlessness, anxiety, our sleepiness, our tiredness, our dullness, our doubt, all of it. There are ways that we can restrain the mind with these faculties and come back to the middle, the balancing point. This is how we cultivate samadhi. This is how the, our attention and our ability to attend to the breath becomes more and more concentrated. And more and more powerful. In the beginning, we may have to focus on a small area of the breath because our attention is still uh, not highly cultivated not highly developed. But the more we practice and the more continuous our practice is using the faith, trusting the practice, energizing our practice, being mindful as often, as much, and as uh, purely as we can, a really deep and ardent form of remembering to pay attention and noting, knowing what's arising in consciousness. And then stilling the mind, restraining the mind from rushing into the past or the future or to any of the sense doors, the visuals, the sounds, the smells, the desires for taste or touch sensations or the aversions to physical sensations, mental feelings, moods, emotions, 
the whole gamut of experience, stilling the mind. We're moving towards cessation to the point where even consciousness may stop. Because this is how we cultivate peace in the heart. And then, of course, the wisdom faculty that knows what's skillful to develop and what is unskillful. So in this whole process, the training hinges on four things. Now, I hope this isn't too much to introduce, but part of this we've already reviewed a little bit. The first one is the training of the body itself. Here we train our our posture. We train ourselves to sit in a certain way. We're not sitting, we're sitting straight, not half lying down or keeled over. We're trying to stay straight. And this posture is a suggestion for how the mind should be, to keep our mental posture in the moment, not falling into the past or leaning into the future, but inclining towards Nibbāna, towards complete purification of the mind, of the heart. And that's not a worldly direction. So it's not up or down, right, left, northeast, southeast, northwest, south. It's not like that. It's inward. It's to be found by investigating and exploring the interior castle. The Buddha left the palatial home of his father and forefathers to enter into the interior castle of the heart. And not only the interior castle, but the inner, inner chamber, the sacred chamber so inaccessible to human consciousness through the sense media, the eyes, nose, ears, tongue, body, and normal or ordinary consciousness. So what do we do? We stop, restrain our sense doors by practicing these precepts. So we move from the body posture, the relationship to uh, the world around us, to each other, to objects that we use, requisites, things we eat, blankets we use, clothing, shoes, chairs, cushions, the way we conduct ourselves gently, silently, respectfully, with sensitivity and care. Then we come to the second area which must be cultivated for this training to develop, and that is precepts, the virtue. Now there's virtue on the level of the body, but now we must look at the virtue in the mind. And for this virtue to develop, we have we have to really look at what we allow in the mind and what we prevent from entering the mind.
So this is the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness, watching over the gate, allowing wholesome factors to be developed, like loving kindness, compassion, and thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of renunciation. (coughs) Very much renunciation must be moment by moment, and moment by moment we are. We're giving up our ability to talk to each other, to engage with each other, to, to read, to entertain ourselves. We're giving up the world moment by moment. Not, not only have we left the world and come here to this strange place, some of you may have never been here, had no idea what kind of accommodation, will I get a blanket, will I get a pillow? Will people be nice to me? Will the food be nice? Wonderful, organic meals cooked with so much care and love and consideration and offered so respectfully and blessed. We bless every day the food. So this is a very high level of virtue that we're engaging in here. And this helps us to develop the training of the mind. We're not eating when we feel like it. We're only eating at a given time. These are precepts of renunciation. We're practicing contentment with what is offered. We're trying not to criticize, not to blame, not to ask for too much to be content with what's, what's there, to be generous with our attention, whether we like the talk, we don't like the talk, we like the speaker, we don't like the speaker, we like the schedule, we don't like the, the schedule, we participate, we cooperate, we work like a team. This creates a wonderful field of goodness, and we're all part of it. Not only is this goodness being created now, but it is built up in these premises for decades. Even the birds happily come and sit in the palms of yogis walking on the grounds because they trust what is here. This is a tremendous thing. So a high standard of virtue and a, a, a tremendous uh, sense of goodness and goodwill in the whole group, of gratitude, of generosity with our, our attention. The highest generosity that we can actually practice is to be attentive to the breath, and to do this investigation of this body and mind process, to train our minds. So we're restraining the senses at the mouth, ears, not listening to music, or talks, other kinds of talk, the eyes, keeping the eyes closed for long periods of time, walking, not looking at others, walking back and forth, over and over again, same place, because it's a training. Repeatedly 
doing the same thing again and again, we begin to observe what does it feel like to walk. This is a way of waking up to walking. So see how this level of restraint lifts us up and holds us in the present moment, anchors us to the present moment. And the more you look at something, the more you begin to see what it is. Do you ever, as a kid, did you ever go outside and hold a magnifying glass on a piece of paper under the sun? What happened? Did it catch fire? This is what happens when we look again and again at the breath or observe again and again the body posture or watch again and again the state of the mind. (coughs) We begin to see through. There's an illumination, the light. It gets clearer and clearer. Our ability to see the impermanence of all these phenomena passing through consciousness. We begin to see the suffering of this changing nature of things. It's not satisfactory. We can't, if we like it, we can't hold on to it. If we don't like it, we have no control over its appearance. It's just going to come. But then it goes away. Then something else will come. Might be frightening. But we can stop fear in its tracks by seeing it's impermanent. Fear is just a thought. It's a form of anxiety. form of uh, something that can terrorize us. We don't like it. But fear or doubt or any of these hindrances understood for what they are under the watchful eye of a silent, powerful, steady gaze of wise, onlooking mindfulness and wise attention is just impermanent phenomena arising and ceasing. There's no one in there. It's empty of self. Not me, not mine. What a freedom. We don't own it. But if we believe in it, then it becomes, uh, we become like a slave to it. It can dominate us and drive us and prevent us from doing this practice. So the purification of body, the purification of mind, which happens through effort, of four right efforts, cultivating and developing that which is skillful and wholesome, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, faith, energy, mindfulness, stilling the mind, non-distraction, focusing, and wisely seeing things for what they really are. This is the training to be done. And as a, at the same time, if we cultivate those skillful, wholesome factors and abilities in the mind and qualities like loving-kindness, compassion, uh, empathetic joy, appreciation, gratitude, And equanimity, the balance, balancing these factors, always coming back to the middle, not too much, not too little. Then 
at the same time, we can keep out the things that prevent us from developing them, such as greed, hatred, and delusion. A memory comes up. No. Thought about tomorrow. No. Worry about whether I can do this or not. No. Just saying a gentle and firm no. This is great compassion. Because wisdom tells us this is not skillful. Mindfulness knows it for what it is and gently chases it out. It reminds me of when I was living in New Zealand and we had, there was a nest of um, the uh, a poisonous spider living in the kuti, under my kuti. So these poisonous spiders would appear out of nowhere, sometimes in the dark. And I, I could sense when one of them was in the room. And I would flick on the light and see it. And very mindfully, rather than running away, very mindfully I'd get out the, I had a little yogurt cup and a piece of cardboard, and I would gently catch it, and then I'd take it for a walk. So with that kind of interest, rather than terror and fear, can't get, get it out. We can't find protection and safety from the things that are unwholesome and not healthy, the things that pollute and are toxic for our minds, if we let them sit there. And I couldn't sleep peacefully because I, might, I slept on the floor in front of my shrine I might roll over onto this spider and get bitten. And because they're quite poisonous, that wouldn't be good. So best for the protection. Not that I hate the thing, but there's a whole world outside the kuti he could live in. So I introduced him to it. (laughs) This is how we can deal with our hindrances. We can introduce them to the world outside of our minds. It's not like saying, well, you go to the yogi next door. (laughs) Not like that. In fact, there were times when I left the... They're called white-tailed spiders, by the way. I would leave one... uh, I would go at least a block, and then I would leave it on the sidewalk, and I would look up at the house and think, well, is this kind? Because he might go there. But I would just, you know, kind of nonchalantly walk back to my kuti thinking, (laughs) (laughs) hoping that, you know, he would find a a place where spiders go. (laughs) I I really had no intention of hurting my neighbors, but the nest was under my kuti. <laughs> we always think that the nest of hindrances is only in my mind. Only I have this suffering. But the beauty of it is that once we study our own minds, we know the nature of every human being, of every mind. We're all the same. All of us. We might have a different sex, gender, I mean. 
We might have a different color of skin, a different intelligence, different education, different language, different religion. We might be crippled or handicapped. We might be dyslexic or, or uh, allergic to everything in the world. It doesn't matter. That's not important. The one thing that we all share is the ability to develop this eightfold noble path. All of us, male or female, it doesn't matter. Blue or black, it doesn't matter. Hair or no hair, it doesn't matter. All of us can do this. Robes or no robes. But if we can develop this kaya bhavana, the development of right relationship to body, and sila, developing precepts, and developing the right efforts of how to cultivate what is skillful and wholesome for the mind and rid ourselves of the spiders that bite. Get them out gently, carefully. But sometimes, sometimes, if the anger has taken hold and it's spilling out and we're acting from a place of anger, we have to really scold ourselves sharply and say, no, inside, stop and be very strict, like a parent. Nowadays, parents are so, seemingly, it seems to me, I don't mean to (laughs) criticize. (laughs) I think parents are amazing what they put up with. But it, it seems like children get spoiled. They seem to rule the house. And very often I see young kids coming to the monastery who are not respectful to their parents. And this is very sad, very sad to see this whittling away of uh, a a standard of morality, of respect. This is one of the most fundamental things we practice as monastics. We practice respect to each other. And the system of respect is very simply who's been at it the longest. It's by seniority. Whether you even an arahant has to bow down to a junior person. One, a fully enlightened monk or nun has to bow down to their junior. Somebody, uh, sorry, <laughs> to their senior. Somebody senior to them because of respect for the practice we've been practicing. So this in lay life, should be a great uh, paradigm that parents or elders should be respected. How are elders treated in our society? They're shunted away, made irrelevant, not prized for their knowledge, for their tradition, for their uh, history, for their understanding of the coming and going of generations. And as a result, this leads to a a lot of decadence in the whole society, an erosion of values. But precepts, the restraint of the mind, that's an inner precept, restraining the sense doors. But restraining speech and action is fundamental to this practice. If we really want 
to cultivate the path to its fulfillment, we have to speak and act with a pure heart. And we can't speak and act with a pure heart if we don't learn to purify our minds. Because eventually, even though we don't want to lie, because our minds are still so easily influenced by what people tell us or what we want from others or various greed, hatred, and delusions, we end up telling lie or hurting someone unintentionally, but because there's a lack of training. So this training is invaluable. If we want peace in the heart, if we want peace in the, in the world, we have to be able to accomplish this training. And the panya bhavana, the development of wisdom, once the mind is stable and steady, this is, what, this is the job of samadhi. Where samadhi becomes like a, a mind that is like a mountain, unshakable. And it develops the factor of equanimity to the point where we're not drawn out anymore to the world. Then the wisdom begins to unfold intuitively. We can't read about it in a book, as I was saying to a few of you today. Sure, you can climb a mountain in your head by reading about it. But if somebody asks you, what's it like on that mountain? How will you know? You haven't walked it. You haven't sweated. You haven't struggled. You haven't scraped yourself against the rock. You haven't seen the view from up there. How would you know what it is? So this path, in some ways, is like a Himalaya. But it's an internal Himalaya. It's right here under our noses. We don't have to go anywhere. But we must make a commitment to do it. Trust that we can do it. Develop these powers of the mind to do it. Fumigate the unwholesome things in the mind. Purify what we allow our abiding to be. Where will my mind rest? Make sure that just like where we sit, we make a good seat where we can sit comfortably for an hour. But internally, we want to create the conditions where we can sit and rest and act from purity and wisdom, compassion, equanimity, loving-kindness, appreciation, and all the other parami for all of our lives with respect and care for each other. This is a a potential that all of us can fulfill. And these are the wonderful circumstances in which we can work together to encourage each other to keep going. So I offer you that for your reflection tonight. Andamayang dhamma varakataya sadhu karang dhamma se sadhu sadhu sadhu